0: This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists.
1: Hey, I'm your co-host Pranav
0: Rajpurkar, And I'm Adrielle Saporta.
1: And you're listening to the AI Health Podcast.
0: Arguably, some of the most exciting work happening in health AI is happening for tasks that use computer vision for the interpretation of medical images. And I thought that we should talk about some of the history and recent advancements here, especially since it relates to our conversation with our guest today, Dr. Joelle Pinot, who's the co-managing director of Facebook AI Research, also known as FAIR. And FAIR has made some pretty great advances here.
1: Absolutely. It's uh, story time. And uh, while our listeners may have heard some of the earlier history here circa the deep learning revolution of 2012, I want to add some flavor to the story by also talking about the evolution of this revolution to modern day.
0: The evolution of the revolution. I like that. (laughs) So, okay, to build up from the basics, computer vision, which goes by CV, is the subfield of AI related to anything involving images or video. Most of the early focus of the community has been on image classification, where you have an image and you're trying to identify whether it contains a cat or a dog, or a penguin, or whatever you want. Now, you might ask, what does a CV model look like under the hood?
1: That's exactly what I was going to ask.
0: Okay, so CV models, since about 2012 to relatively recently, have been convolutional neural networks, also called convnets, or CNNs. Now, transformer models have been on the rise, and we will definitely need to cover transformers in a future episode. Absolutely. But back to convnets. Convnets became famous in 2012 when Jeff Hinton, Ilya Sutskever, and Alex Krzyzewski, a group from the University of Toronto, developed a CNN called AlexNet and won a computer vision competition informally called the ImageNet Challenge. And AlexNet just totally blew the rest of the competition out of the water. I should mention that Jan LeCun, who's the VP and chief AI scientist at Facebook, pioneered convnets in the 1980s.
1: And I just want to try to paint a picture of what a CNN is. So to imagine what a CNN is learning, you have to imagine a hierarchy of features that you can learn from an image. So for example, to learn that an image contains a car, you might imagine a lower level concept like the edges of the car that are useful to identify it, or more abstract features of a car like the wheel or the door, or even more abstract features like the way the door and the wheels are laid out relative to each other. And that's what a connet tries to do, but without explicit instruction of what a wheel is and what a door is. The key here is that for a connet to learn to recognize a car, it only needs to be shown what a car looks like and what a car doesn't look like.
0: I really liked the picture that you just painted.
1: Well, thanks, I
0: try. Okay, well then if I should continue to paint, our ConvNet imagination, we should also imagine the ConvNet as being very, very hungry for data. I see it. Okay, so current ConvNets need to be trained on massive data sets. So data sets that have over a million labeled images like ImageNet or Open Images or Places. These data sets typically have been painstakingly gathered over many years. Now for medical images, say in radiology, In theory, to create a dataset like that, you need to enlist a bunch of radiologists to sit down for hours and hours and label those scans. And radiologists are like pretty busy. But as long as this example has come up, I'd be remiss not to mention that you Pranav and some colleagues at Stanford actually did release one of the largest datasets of labeled chest X-ray scans called Chexpert, which is pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, that was certainly fun. And there are many scenarios in which it's difficult to collect enough labeled images to train a model well. And the question is, in these cases, can we still train these data hungry connets? Turns out we can. And the idea is to first have these networks learn to identify cats and dogs in images, and then use that network with its learned features as a starting point for learning a medical imaging task. So the first step is called pre-training, and the second step is called fine-tuning.
0: Let's definitely talk more about that.
1: Yeah, the idea is that when we're learning our first task of identifying cats, the network will learn general features that will help its learning on the medical task. An example of this might be that the features that are useful to identify edges on a cat are also useful for identifying edges of the lung, which are helpful to identify certain diseases. Then when we transfer these features to our new network, we can learn more quickly in our second stage, the fine tuning stage, where we learn our new task of interpreting the medical image.
0: Nearly all of the top performing models for medical imaging interpretation use this formula of pre-training and then fine tuning. And that formula is also called transfer learning. The ImageNet data set, which contains millions of images of many different classes, so tigers, streetcars, flamingos, has been most often the de facto pre-training data set. And Pranav, I know that one of your recent papers called Chex Transfer looked at the effect of ImageNet pre-trained models on smaller chest X-ray interpretation data sets.
1: That's right. Now, modern day deep learning is seeing a couple of new and exciting directions of advancement. First, the pre-training data sets are getting orders of magnitude larger. Facebook, for instance, in 2018, shared a method for training convnets on a billion images.
0: Okay, so then the natural question that our listeners might have is, how do they do that, right? Like, did people manually label a billion images?
1: Well, in a way, but it's quite creative. These networks were actually trained on public Instagram images using user-supplied hashtags as labels instead of manually categorizing each picture. And by training their CV system with a billion size data set, this Facebook team at the time achieved a record high score on ImageNet.
0: That's actually very, very cool. Then That makes a lot of sense. So I have a ridiculously adorable dog named Evie, and she's a schnauzer poodle mix, for those who are interested. And so when I upload a photo of Evie onto Instagram and then hashtag that photo with hashtag schnauzer poodle or hashtag cute, in a way, I'm labeling that image.
1: Right. And the main result of Facebook's paper is that without manual data set curation or sophisticated data cleaning, models trained on billions of Instagram images using thousands of distinct hashtags as labels exhibited excellent transfer learning performance.
0: We haven't even covered the parallels of these advances on video instead of images and self-supervised learning, which has been a really neat new paradigm for doing even better on image classification. But that's something for you, our listeners, to look forward to.
1: You got it. So today we're going to be talking to Dr. Joelle Pino, the co-managing director of Facebook AI Research. Dr. Pino is also a faculty member at Mila and an associate professor at McGill University, where she co-directs the Reasoning and Learning Lab. Excited to have with us today, Dr. Joelle Pino. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Happy to be here.
1: So I'd love to start by asking you about how you got into AI and healthcare.
2: Hmm. I first got into AI. You know, I I studied during uh, my grad study, robotics, machine learning, in particular, algorithms of how machines make decision. And at some point through my PhD, this was at CMU, early 2000s, my advisor comes into the lab one day with this quite ambitious plan to build a healthcare nursing assistant. Um, And so the idea was we're going to take everything we know about how to do indoor robotics, navigation, mapping, localization, and we're going to take it into a nursing room setting, and we're going to develop the whole component about human-robot interaction so we can also embed into this dialogue systems, speech recognition, preference models, and all of this. So it's really through the course of my PhD, I did some more fundamental theoretical work on planning algorithms for robots. And then I applied this in the context of this nursing assistant robot. It was really exciting. We took it all the way to doing some testing deployment with uh, residents of a nursing home in Pittsburgh.
1: And since then, as a faculty, you've continued on your efforts at the intersection of AI and health. Could you talk a little bit about some of the projects that you've undertaken over the past many years? Mm
2: -hmm. At the end of my PhD, I moved to Montreal to join the faculty at McGill University. And for those of you who don't know McGill very well, it actually has a very large faculty of medicine with many researchers and so I think at that point, it was just the opportunity to collaborate with people outside of my discipline. And to, I always loved interdisciplinary work and the ability to create new projects that would put me into contact with people who had other expertise. And because there were so many people with expertise in healthcare, it seemed, you know, a good source of such projects. So I started one project that was on developing, designing, building intelligent wheelchairs. And so in that case, I was able to leverage a lot of the work we had done on nursing robots, but apply them specifically for robotic wheelchairs. And then I started another set of projects that was much closer to treatment design for patients with chronic illnesses. And so there we were really looking at the data coming in and trying to use a data-driven approach, machine learning planning algorithms to determine optimal treatment strategies and automatic discovery of treatment strategies for patients with chronic illnesses.
1: I want to spend a little bit talking about one of the projects. You mentioned treatment design, and one of the reasons that treatment design is hard is because when we give a patient a treatment or decide to not give a treatment, we don't get to observe what happens had they gone down the route of not getting the treatment if they received the treatment and vice versa. So how do you think about navigating such a problem?
2: It's really useful when you're planning, in particular the initial data collection to make sure that you're really trying to get data from a broad range of treatment conditions. And there's always a little bit of a trade-off and this is a classic trade-off in AI which we call the explore-exploit trade-off, right? Explore, you're going to try out all sorts of different treatments You're going to get the data digested and exploit means you then from the data you've seen really optimize, choose the optimal treatment for a particular disease, a particular patient, particular condition. There's a trade-off there in particular when dealing with humans because you don't want to explore in a way that's unsafe. And so in many ways, you know, we use a lot of prior knowledge from how these patients are being treated with control baseline treatments actual current standard of care and use that as our basis. And we explore within that safe space that's determined by both the current treatment and maybe a larger envelope of treatments that the the clinical researchers are already considering. And so that's through a lot of conversations with our clinical partners that we can determine how to do that. Once we have that space of safe exploration, we can actually randomize the different treatment options, much like you would in a randomized clinical trial to get information from a wide range of treatment. And so once you've done that, you can actually tell sort of whether, you know, the, run the counterfactual argument of whether one treatment versus another would be better.
1: I think one of the challenges with uh, building these treatment designs is also in terms of testing them. How do we know that once we have this recommender that says treatment A is better than treatment B for this particular patient? How does one go about designing a way to to test this? Because one of the ways of testing this would be on historical data and try to have some kind of an evaluation there. The other one is to try to do it in real practice prospectively. So how do you navigate that decision?
2: Often it depends what kind of algorithms we're building. So if we're building an algorithm that's doing supervised learning, and so we usually use this for prediction tasks. You know, you get some data, And there's a quantity that you're trying to predict. Maybe it's how the patient will respond to treatment or whether the patient will suffer some adverse effects. When there's a prediction question like that, there's a pretty well-established methodology of how to do that. You usually separate your data between training data and testing data, assuming the same distribution. You don't look at your testing data until you're really set on your predictor. And then you pull it out and and you can run it with historical data as long as you've done the clean separation. And we're very diligent in doing that. I've had some projects where we've taken the test data and we lock it up and we don't touch it until we've done the whole study. We've essentially written the paper with the data we have and we're confident that the results are good. And then we pull out the testing data to just double check whether you know, or to test in a convincing way whether the results are, are reliable. Most of my research though, is actually in reinforcement learning. And in reinforcement learning, you're learning how to control a dynamic system. So that system keeps on changing in response to the actions you take. That's a lot trickier and you can't really trust an evaluation on historical data. You really have to try it out. And so the particular project where we did a lot of this is the project a few years ago, one of the first ones I did at McGill where we were developing a reinforcement learning strategy to optimize a neurostimulation device for patients with epilepsy. So this particular device has an electrode that applies electrical stimulation to the brain. And the role of that stimulation is to disturb the patterns of firing of the electrons, do it in a way that the cells in the brain can't all, the neurons can't all start firing at the same time. So you disrupt the synchronization and therefore there's no epilepsy. And so in that case, we were really trying to figure out how do we probe the system? What's the right timing on these little pulses that we are sending in such that we can maximize our ability to reduce seizures and reduce stimulation at the same time? So that's the kind of setting where you can't do your evaluation in historical data, because on historical data, there was a particular pattern of stimulation that was applied. Now we've used this data to learn a better pattern of stimulation, but then we need to evaluate that better pattern of stimulation. So that usually requires running something that looks like a confirmation trial, right? So you run a study where you just run your new strategy on data, collect new data with this new strategy, and you actually compare between control strategy and this optimized strategy. But it can take a long time. In this particular study with epilepsy, It took us about six months to gather the original training data set. It took us about six months to train our algorithm. And then it took us two years to run the validation study. And at that point, there was no more machine learning to do. All we did was wait and kind of keep our fingers crossed that the algorithm was gonna do the job. So it's it's sort of the scale at which some of these projects happen, you know, compared to other work in AI and machine learning is really very different.
0: You mentioned this a little bit earlier when you talked about trying to figure out ways to explore more safely, and I'm wondering if maybe you can share some lessons that you've learned about how to deploy ML when the stakes are so much higher in healthcare than they might be in other types of verticals.
2: You know, I should be (laughs) candid with you. I haven't done a lot of projects that we take all the way to the deployment. You know, we've certainly done a lot of testing and validation with Patient population with the real setting, but we haven't taken all the way till there's like a device or an algorithm that's running in normal healthcare operation. That's an incredibly challenging thing. And often we sort of pass on the project at a particular stage of maturity. You know, the phase that I love is the sort of the zero to one phase, you know, the showing that the impossible is actually possible. But still, even from that early phase, you have to be really thoughtful about how to do this. The best I know how to do this is to partner really closely with people who have deep expertise on the medical side, usually looking for people who are experts in their domain who will really understand the context in which the technology would be deployed. So I like to have those people at the table from day one, I like to see the real data very, very early on. We usually have, you know, a couple planning sessions and early on, even though it may not be the final data set, but start send me some data so I can really touch it and feel it and get a sense for what are the characteristics. And then we, we use a lot of their domain knowledge to understand how to encode the information, what's the prediction question we want to ask or the control question. A lot of our algorithms are trained by minimizing a loss function. There's usually like a quantity that you're trying to optimize, maximize or minimize, depending on the setting. Choosing that quantity requires knowing, you know, what we want to achieve. So that requires a lot of in-depth domain knowledge also.
1: One thing you mentioned was that the training of the model took six months And then you were validating it for two years. I think one of the things that is underestimated about this intersection is how much more there is to uh, building these models than it is just to be training these models. So could you maybe talk a little bit about what is it beyond the coding of uh, the loss function and waiting for the model to train that goes into actually developing these and validating these over time?
2: it changes a lot from project to project. That one was a little bit of an extreme, perhaps in terms of the time span, but still, you know, I think you just want to get the testing conditions right. And so really make sure that they reflect the type of conditions under which you want to claim that your algorithm has reasonable performance. And so that sometimes takes some trial and error to get that right. In this case, we were doing this work on animal models of epilepsy. Getting those animal models right requires a particular kind of expertise, and we need to get a particular kind of rat. And there's a certain season where the brain develops in a certain way. So you have to wait for that natural evolution. And, and there's a lot of things that we can accelerate in the world, but you know, animal and human biology. We haven't found a way to accelerate (laughs) which in some sense is good you know (laughs) but but from an experimental process point of view you know our computers are getting faster we're following Moore's law that doesn't happen when you're working with an animal model some things you can parallelize but there's other things you can't parallelize and so you just have to plan that into your experimental method for someone coming from computer science where, you know, we run our experiments on clusters most of the time, just get more machines. It's a lot harder to slow down to that pace, but it's been a really interesting opportunity to really learn how to work in that space. And, you know, at the end of those two years, you get to find out whether it works or it doesn't work. It puts a very high bar on your methodology. And that's probably One of the reasons in recent years I've become a little bit of an advocate for reproducibility in machine learning, it really comes from that experience of having to just get it right because otherwise the cost is large.
0: So you spent many years in academia before becoming the co-managing director of Facebook AI Research. And I'm wondering if maybe you could just start by explaining to us why you decided to move into industry and what types of problems that you were hoping to work on that would be different than the types of problems that you were working on in academia.
2: I think as, as researchers, we have a natural curiosity and, and that curiosity doesn't always stay within the strict boundaries of our academic discipline. So I had spent a number of years at McGill University, a role I love, and I, I still have some students there. But at some point, you get the sense that you have sort of figured out how to do that role, that job. And there was a real curiosity about how to do machine learning effectively in an industry setting. A lot of fantastic research is coming out of industrial labs, specifically for on machine learning. And so really, it was a curiosity to find out what could I do? I didn't have a clear idea starting into it but I had seen a steady stream of really high quality research coming out in particular out of FAIR, which is a lab that I joined. And so it was both really high respect and admiration for the quality of the scientific work, the curiosity to work with these people. And also there's the fact that FAIR as a lab is really committed to open science. And, And it's pretty unique. It's not the only one, but I think it's really Quite advanced in its thinking in that respect. Most of our researchers do publish regularly. The code that we develop is open sourced. We can share the code with external partners, which allows us to do some projects. And we'll talk about a few of these projects that would be possible with that strong commitment to open science. And for me, the fact that an industry lab could exist, be incredibly successful, be incredibly valuable to the company, and still maintain this high commitment to open science was really interesting. And it just seemed like something I wanted to contribute
0: to. I love hearing that. I'm curious if maybe you can talk a little bit about why you think big industry players are putting so many resources behind research. And you know, you talk about how much there's this commitment to open science at Facebook. And is there a tension between being so open about this new breakthrough technology but also wanting to keep some things proprietary because you want to make sure you're a strong business. And have you ever faced any of those tensions?
2: I faced very little of that tension about the ideas. We face it a lot more about the data than about the ideas, but about the ideas, you know, I work in the space of AI and anyone who's followed the field for the last decade has probably seen how quickly the results are coming out how quickly the science is changing and so there's really a sense that to participate in that movement it pays off to be very open you know one of the contributions coming out of the Facebook AI group is PyTorch and PyTorch as a whole has been you know used by so many people but because so many people adopt it you know, it feeds back into that ecosystem, we benefit from everyone who's developing new libraries, we can integrate them. When we release our libraries, people use them, we hear back and we can improve on them very, very quickly. So I think there's a strong belief that innovation and science as a collective institution, that we move faster and in a field that is moving very, very quickly, we can take advantage of that. There's no time to protect your ideas. You know, so many people are working on them in parallel If we don't share them, they will be shared two months later by another group. So there's really much more of an advantage to be open and to lead the way. For the most part, we find for some of the work that we do, there's clear applications inside the company for Facebook. And we have other organizations that work on the applied research side. You know, FAIR is really dedicated to exploratory research, the open science model, but there's other groups who are more dedicated to doing it in a very directed company focused way. And we collaborate with them on a very fluid basis, but sort of different levels of responsibility. I will though add a note that the place where we try to be a lot more careful is in terms of what data we use for doing the development. that's also a bit useful to have sometimes different teams. A lot of the work we do to be open source, we do on open benchmarks so that people can see the results, so that people can replicate our work. Some of the work that's done internally with Facebook user data, of course, has a much different standard in terms of privacy. And so we have to set up the projects very differently. And so we have other teams that work on those projects and those models. And it's really easy to pass back and forth the algorithms and the ideas. And then we have pretty tight walls for the data. And that works reasonably well in this case.
1: One of the advantages of being at the forefront of innovation and science is also being able to attract talent. Uh, When there are so many great papers coming out of Facebook AI Research, there's a lot of students who look at them and think, okay, this would be a place I would go and want to work. And we're, we're seeing, especially in AI and health, there's a lot of efforts being made by large public tech companies and a lot of talent pool joining. So I'm curious, is it encouraging to you that we have such great talent working on these problems or is it concerning that we're leaving now our health in the hands of public corporations where we will have this talent? And maybe just as an example of that, in large corporations, there might be a bias towards working on problems which require large compute to solve. And so we're making progress in a certain direction, while maybe it can be argued that in more resource constrained environments, there's more of an emphasis on being creative with the amount of compute available. So I was curious to get your thoughts on that.
2: I think there's like a few threads to follow out of that, right? <laughs> One thread is really this question of what research is better done in what environment. And we know that the pressures of the context will drive sometimes the research questions, the methodology, depending what equipment you have access to, it really changes the question we can ask. This isn't specific just to AI, we've seen it on many other fields, you know, in physics, for example, once they started building this very large particle accelerator type of infrastructure, they could suddenly ask other questions. So I think it's natural to see a little bit different research happening in academia, in industry, I don't view that as being a problem as long as there's like a healthy stream of research coming across. In this case, the demand for people with AI expertise is so large that it is absolutely in all of the company's interests to make sure that the universities are well-funded, well-staffed, that there's strong professors who continue to do that work. So, you know, whenever Facebook has gone in and opened a lab in a new city, it's really in a sort of a sustainable mindset of, you know, bringing in maybe a few people to see the lab, but then leaving a lot of professors on the academic side to keep on training the next generation of researchers. Specifically on the question of healthcare research, of how to organize that, I, I think Different companies have approached it with, in different ways. You know, there's many companies for whom this is a primary or sort of top level product. That's not the case at Facebook. And all the projects that we've done at FAIR are actually not connected to product um, strategies in any way. We've really done them more from the point of view of leveraging what we know best how to do on AI to enable new developments on the science side. And so for that reason, we've always done it in partnership with external groups. One of our projects on uh, the fast MRI project was done with a a group at NYU, including the medical school who really have that medical expertise in analyzing MRI images, the clinical care, and so on and so forth. And so in that case, there was kind of an opportunity to combine our experience in computer vision, in building 2D, 3D models of data to do reconstruction of these MRI images and apply it to this particular problem with our collaborators. So Facebook as a company isn't gonna start commercializing MRI ma- machines, You know, if anything that commercialization is gonna go through third parties. But yet there's a recognition that, that for us as a fundamental research lab, by solving concrete problems or really challenging ourselves to develop new ideas. And that can be really interesting to do.
1: So let's talk more about the FAST MRI project that you mentioned. Could you tell us a little bit more about what the goal of that project is and how it came to be?
2: Mm -hmm. I'm assuming most of your listeners are familiar with the concept of getting an MRI image. This technology has been around now for a little while. It is used a lot to be able to diagnose certain conditions. And for anyone who's gone to have an MRI image done, you probably know how stressful of an experience it can be. It takes a long time. You're sort of stuck in this machine. You can't move for for a long period of time. For some people, it's difficult to do. People who are claustrophobic, young children, in some cases, the machine is very noisy. You can't move at all and so on. So it's not a super pleasant experience. Of all of the imaging technologies, we have this one in particular is not super pleasant. And so the hypothesis was that we could actually, instead of taking sampling a complete MRI image, we could actually take only pieces of the information and sort of reconstruct so fill in the rest of the information using AI technology. And if we could acquire maybe just like a quarter of the information, then you could take a quarter of the time. So instead of being in the machine for 40 minutes, you're there for just 10 minutes. If you move a little bit, you can control for that movement through the reconstruction. So really using AI techniques to develop those models. And it was quite exciting to do. You know, early on, you go from the stage of just specifying the the problem. So what type of MRI images are you going to reconstruct? So we spent a lot of time on the knees um, (laughs) because our partner had a lot of data of this type. And you train the system to recognize the features, because you have to assume your algorithm at the beginning knows nothing about these types of images. So you train it on a lot of images. You have to determine what's the task that we're going to predict, and then try out the algorithm and see if it can actually predict with high accuracy. You have to get the labels. So doctors have to go and label the particular feature on the image that you want. And then at the end, you know, we, we have to see whether the performance of our algorithm is on par with the performance of the doctors when each of them is presented with the data. And then the case of our machine, you, you take the image and you reconstruct and that gives you a new image. And so the doctors either get to look at the image that was partly reconstructed or they look at an image that was fully acquired with the traditional method. And you have to see if they're actually making different clinical judgments. And So it's really interesting in this case, you know, when we started doing that, at first the images we were producing with reconstruction had some kind of pathological artifacts. They were like too clean compared to the images that the doctors were used to. So we had to sort of make them a little more messy so that the doctors were not fooled. And it wasn't just a question of, can they tell which is true or false? It was really to do their diagnostic you know, they needed to have the same kind of image because that's what they were trying to analyze through their own medical training. So there's some of these subtleties that you don't think about when you start the project and down the line, because you're working in close partnership with this medical team, you start seeing, you know, what are the actual problems you're gonna have to solve.
1: One of the things you'd mentioned earlier was the need to be able to deeply understand the data and engage with the domain to be able to solve a problem. At the same time, one of the things that Facebook has been able to really successfully do over the past many years is make advances in image recognition models and video recognition models over the past few years. How transferable have these technologies been? How plug and play have these technologies been to the healthcare projects in your view?
2: I would say it's a little bit of a mixed bag. In some cases, it's quite readily transferable. In other cases, we really need to be quite clever to understand how to encode the data. So in the case of images, it's not too bad. In a recent project we've done, we've been able to use some pre-trained models that were developed for natural images, and we're actually using this for x-ray images, and the models work quite well but I've talked a little bit early on about the project we did with epilepsy. And in the case of epilepsy, you know, I talked about the stimulation, but I didn't talk as much about the signal. We're usually reading an EEG signal in real time. And this EEG signal, there's been some work on on EEGs in machine learning, but not nearly as much as images. So in that case, we've had to be creative about actually how to take an EEG signal over a period of time, in fact, several channels of EEG. So you get, you know, 16 electrodes recording in parallel at different places in the brain and taking those channels and transforming them to an image. And there's a way, there's like a transformation that takes sort of time and frequency information and projects it into spatial information. And once we do that, then you can start using image technology. So there's always, I think, especially when it's a new type of data, there's a time where you have to be pretty creative about not just using the raw data, but using our human understanding of that raw data to decide how to encode it in a representation where it will be easier for the machine to learn it. And that's a really important part of many of these projects.
0: Just going back very quickly to fast MRI, I'm curious where this tech eventually goes. So so you partnered with NYU Langone Health and is the idea then that NYU can use this technology in the clinical workflow or is the hope that any hospital would be able to sort of pick this up and use it and is it in the format that non-technical users would be able to take advantage of this technology or is the idea that you're just contributing to the field and then somebody else will, you know, move it forward in some way that's actually usable in the clinical setting?
2: Yeah, there's always a little bit of a question, right? Like, at what point do we let our our babies go? And and are we the best person or the best company or the best group of researchers to accompany them through the whole lifetime? In this case, we, we open sourced a lot of what we did. So we open sourced some data, we open sourced some code. So really, there's a sense that anyone could go and use this and make what they want of it. Of course, you know, the data we open source is not representative of all types of MRIs, but someone else could collect their own MRI, take the algorithm and do their own analysis. I think the most interesting scenario is to partner with a company that's a manufacturer of MRIs so that at some point the software can be embedded into the hardware and then, you know, really packaged in a way that makes it really easy and added with a beautiful interface and so on, you know, like take on a full product approach to it. Facebook isn't going to be the company to do this. It's just too far from our core work. But certainly that would be the vision, that we can pass this on, figure out the right agreements such that the people whose business it is to produce that kind of technology can really leverage it. I mean, at the end of the day, we do want this to be useful for people in the clinical setting. And so, you know, we're really entering this with a spirit of finding a path towards that.
0: Got it. Okay. So FAIR has been working on a wide range of initiatives related to COVID-19. And so I thought it'd be great to start to chat about that a little bit. So one project has been to produce AI-powered forecasts of the spread of COVID across the U.S. at the county level.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Can you maybe introduce our listeners to that work and, and talk a little bit about where that started
2: and how that turned out? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone, especially in the early days of the pandemic, you know, was really following the numbers, tracking where the infection was going, trying to predict how the case count was going to change in their own geography and other geographies around it. And so, At the end of the day, this is really a prediction question. And and there was really an opportunity to build models that are predicting that information. There's a lot of factors that come into those questions. And so we had the opportunity to build machine learning models that really generate forecasts of how the virus is gonna spread. The prediction is done really at the county level, so quite low resolution geographically. Started mostly in New York, New Jersey, trying to do the prediction, but now actually the models have been used in lots of other places, including in Austria and so on, to try to do this level of prediction. And once again, you know, we partnered with some people to try to get those forecasts into the hands of the right people We're not really making decisions using that, we're really providing the information in a way that can be useful for decision makers to act upon it. And this work was actually work that was based on previous work we had done on the spreading of information, which, as you can imagine, is is something that is relevant and interesting inside Facebook. We had the expertise to build these kinds of network, and when the, the COVID situation presented itself, some of our researchers you know, really decided to pivot to predicting these kinds of questions and seeing how it can be done. The forecasts, as far as I'm told, are used by several uh, local administrations, hospitals, and so on, to at least try to get a sense of what is coming along. But it's, it's always a challenging task to do this kind of prediction under such varying and dynamic conditions.
0: To the extent that you can, I'd love to hear maybe what it's been like to work with some of the government agencies with this technology. Because I think I read that you're providing periodic reports to the European Commission. And I think of the EU as always being notoriously worried about privacy concerns. And so I'm curious sort of how those conversations evolved.
2: A few things to know about how we went about this, right? One of them is All of the information that we are using to make these predictions is information which itself is open information. We're not using the information from our Facebook users or from any of the Facebook platform to make these predictions. It's really open source information which, you know, they can track themselves, they can look up, they have access to without privacy concerns it's also prediction at the level of aggregation of a region. We're not predicting at individual levels. So the privacy concerns are really mediated by the type of data we use and the type of prediction that we make. So in this case, the question is perhaps more one of like reliability and really trying to understand like the accuracy of that information. One thing that's always A bit challenging when we take an algorithm outside of a research group and we really try to share it with people on the front line is to communicate the uncertainty you know what is the uncertainty in our prediction what's the notion of error and how to interpret that and how to use that uncertainty within any decision that people will make and so trying to to be really mindful of that when we communicated with some of these external groups is really important
0: Another project that FAIR launched is using natural language processing to match people in need to nearby individuals and organizations offering COVID-19 related support. So for example, if someone posts on Facebook or or Instagram an offer to deliver groceries or to make face coverings, then they'll see suggestions to connect with other people who recently posted about needing groceries or masks. And so I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about that, because this project is kind of cool because it builds on past research that facebook had released as well
2: Mm -hmm. indeed in that case you know it's really that one goes really much closer to sort of the bread and butter of what facebook is which is you know connecting people connecting people to other people or services that can enhance their life in a meaningful way so covid shows up all of a sudden you know all of us have completely different needs if you just look at you know the types of things that you needed pre-COVID on a (laughs) weekly basis versus the types of things you needed during the pandemic. It's really quite different. And, you know, taking myself as an example, suddenly like I needed a table and chair and screen inside my house to set up an office, right? Never thought I would need that. And so there's a lot of people in all these conditions, some of them in much, much more difficult conditions than I am, people who needed safety gear, uh, masks and so on. And connecting all these people together was the real challenge. And so, yeah, we used NLP models in many cases to try to direct the right information to the right people. And so really connecting posts with certain information, recognizing the information in those posts, what was being offered, who would be interested to do that and doing it within this community help hub platform. And another thing, you know, another challenge with these situation is also connecting people across language barriers. And so we've done a lot of work on machine translation, both theoretical work, much of this is open source. Many of our models are available for people who want to use them. We've used already these uh, machine translation model inside the platform. Sometimes, you know, you want to see a post in another language, you can see, show me the translation. In this case, to connect people for the COVID situation to resources, material they needed. You can also use translation so that you can connect them across different community with different language uses. There was a whole new language that evolved around COVID, right? There's terms, there's vocabulary that we didn't know a year ago and that are now are completely common in our vocabulary. We humans had to learn this, but our machines had to learn this too. And very, very quickly, and across many languages. So it's fascinating to see our research teams go, 2020, March, April, May, you know, the terminology, the dictionary of these algorithms was growing. And, you know, we went from doing it in a few languages, just a handful of languages, to 20 languages, to 30 to 50 different languages who now had all of that vocabulary for COVID. And once you have it in one language, we can actually connect it in different languages. We've done a lot of work on unsupervised machine translation. So you don't always need the alignment word to word between language pairs. But if you know enough information of how these two languages are connected, you can project that to all the other words and concepts in that language. Um, So that helped us a lot because getting what we call annotated data, right, where you have the translation of lots of sentences between all these language pairs takes a lot of time. We didn't really have that time, especially in the early months of COVID. So all of the work we had done on unsupervised machine translation is the kind of technology you never imagine you're going to need it for this, but then COVID hits and, and we have a lot of really creative, resourceful people. So they just jumped on it and it was really, really inspiring to see. I feel like it's a perfect example
0: of a company being able to take, so the two models that I think you guys used were XLM and Roberta and being able to take mm-hmm. these two advances that you as a company had made previously and then apply it to something in the research setting that actually was
2: perfect for it. Exactly. Yeah. And some of that goes back to how our research is organized, right? We have researchers which has very free research agenda. They can jump on the opportunity. They can be very guided by their curiosity. And so having that group of researchers that's driven by exploration and curiosity gives us the ability to react very quickly when there's new problems to solve which is really a rich setting in which to be doing research. So one of the other
1: projects that Facebook has done in collaboration with NYU is to analyze chest x-rays and other clinical information of people with COVID and then build a model that can roughly estimate the risks for different people. Could you talk a little bit about this project and the pilot that you developed and deployed uh, very quickly to be able to do this?
2: This other project was really, I would say, closer to the patient population. So people who unfortunately had COVID and New York in the early days of the pandemic had a a lot of these patients, unfortunately. We already had a close partnership with NYU Hospital through the Fast MRI Project. It's not exactly the same condition needs versus you know, COVID, but still the strength of that partnership with those teams actually allows us to build new projects very quickly. In this case, our, our colleagues at NYU Langone Hospital contacted us and they were really interested in using models of machine learning to try to predict which patients would get worse through the course of the disease, You know, which patient would need to be intubated, which patient would need to be moved to ICU. And so having these models would allow them to better plan their hospital resources. And they had some hypothesis of how to do that. Some of that from um, x-ray images, chest x-rays, some of this from bedside data, the labs, the tests, and the clinical variables that get collected every day in the hospital. Um, so we we looked at this data with them. Very quickly, we set up a pilot to collect the data, to get a batch of data into the hands of our researchers, always in collaboration with them. We already had data sharing agreements in place that really defined the conditions under which the data could be shared. It's usually always anonymized or de-identified. We always work closely with our researchers to understand the nature of that data, define the prediction question, and so on. So yeah, we were able to set up the models and particularly, we spent quite a bit of time over the summer building models to automatically from the chest x-ray predict which patient would worsen significantly. And we do that from one images or from several images. We also try to predict how much oxygen the patients are going to need. One of the challenges in this case was that we knew very little about the disease back in the spring. We knew very little about how the disease evolved and even looking at the x-ray image, there was certainly some clues in terms of, you know, this sort of inflammation of the lungs that is manifesting itself, but we didn't have a deep understanding of what are the markers to look at in these images. And even, I mean, even though the pandemic has unfortunately affected large numbers of people, it's still relatively small amount of data from a machine learning point of view. So one of the things we did early on is, you know, work actually with some of the data that has been open sourced at Stanford. The Chexpert data set actually has a large collection of chest x-rays from patients with other respiratory conditions. And in that case, we also set up an agreement to use that data to pre-train our model and it's fascinating because in many ways the doctors themselves had been pre-trained with this kind of data that was in chest right other images of x-ray for other respiratory condition and they had to go from what they knew of these images and apply it to the chest x-ray we were seeing for covid patients we did the same thing with our machine learning system so we pre-trained them to understand the characteristic of chest x-ray for respiratory disease from these other conditions and then using the data from the COVID patient, we fine tune, so we you know, we did the final stages of learning so that we could do the prediction in this case, in terms of worsening conditions for the patients. Yeah,
1: and one of the fascinating things I found about that paper was that there was an interesting comparison to human performance and showing how this is at least as good as if not better than human performance in terms of being able to learn these patterns automatically from the data. And I think one underestimated advantage of having data-driven approaches here is in the case such as this, where we don't know the underlying relationships biologically, we can come up with hypotheses using these machine learning models. So I think that's very encouraging.
2: Absolutely. I'll I'll add one caveat, though. (laughs) I feel it's my responsibility, which is, you know, the study we did was comparing just with the image information. So given the image information in some setting, yes, the machine can predict more reliably which patients are going to get worse than the doctors. In reality, though, our doctors right now still have the ability to incorporate much richer information. They can take the image, they can also take all the clinical side. you know, they can look at the patient with, with their eyes and, and get a different, much more rich view. and the algorithms don't do that yet. Um, So we still have some ways to go. I think in many ways, the partnership between the human and the machine is really the most promising way to think about this. The machines are great with homogeneous data. They're not yet there with really heterogeneous data. Um, So we have to kind of take the strength of each side in order to build the best solution. And and it's been a really, really exciting time to be working with our clinical partners Joelle, thanks so much for
1: taking the time. This has been incredible chatting with you.
2: My pleasure. It's always fun. As you can tell, I'm passionate about this work, so I'm always happy to share it with others.
1: And that's all, folks. A big thank you to Dr. Joelle Pino for talking to us today. And thank you for listening. We're your hosts, Pranav and Adriel. And until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.
0: The AI Health Podcast is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee. Music by Ethan A. Chi. If you like what you just heard, let a friend know. Subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or connect with us on Twitter at AI Health Podcast.